John chapter 6. Well, all I can say to Bert Lumley is you've got a nerve talking about the length of my sermon. <laughs> Just in case you should go on too long, John. <laughs> great to be with you here. Stained glass windows. Several people came to me right at the beginning and said, it's not normally like this. <laughs> I really do um, sympathize with the whole business of uh, changes and things that you can't predict coming up on a Sunday morning when you, you're hiring places. We've got a, a bit of a difficulty at Manor Hall Middle School, where the Southwick congregation meets, because it's an open plan middle school, so that means that a lot of the children's projects are out and vulnerable and on tables and desks and, and window ledges, and you know there are paper mache bridges and stuffed owls and all sorts of things. And I'm amazed, really, that, that lots of children that we've got, we have about 60 or 70 children, haven't broken anything before last weekend. Um, well, last weekend, a paper mache bridge, I'm afraid, uh, needed some repairs, apparently. I didn't know anything about it, but that, that's what I'm told. And we got a, a rather straight letter from the headmaster saying that if it happened again, we'd be out. So it really is very, very difficult, isn't it? Week by week, sometimes, working through this whole business of uh, renting places, some of which are not, not ideal, and you have to be flexible when people are having plays and so on, and... I understand this is not the way you normally have the layout, is that right? And you don't normally carry pianos on your shoulders at the beginning of the morning. But uh, I think one of the things we've got to hear God saying again and again is that he's looking at the quality of our worship. He's not primarily looking at our buildings. He's not looking primarily at uh, all sorts of structural and organisational things. If we come with a heart to worship him, express our love to him, if our eyes are to him, that's what he's first and foremost worried about, concerned about. That's what he wants from us. And it's, that's been what's happened this morning, just looking around um, during our worship, seeing people worshipping God, giving him their, their love and adoration. So it's a real joy to be with you. And uh, lovely just to see some of you again, because I don't see some of you very often, and it's really lovely to see you. So thanks for your welcome. We're going to read John from John 6. <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'd like to uh, read from, let's say, verse 47 of John 6. We could actually have read from verse 25, but I think we'll read from verse 47. Jesus, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Father, I do pray that you will break through this passage of Scripture and through mere words that I might mouth. And I pray that you break through by the power of your Spirit to make them living words. I pray, Lord, that you will draw the veil from our eyes this morning so that we can really see, so that we can have a moment of realization. Yes, we see it now. We understand. We can receive what your word is saying. Oh God, we do pray week by week as we come and we study your word and we uh, sit as it's declared and proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that you will build your truth into our lives. Oh God, do that. We want to be men and women who are mature. We want to be men and women who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be those who know the truth and the truth sets free. Oh, so do it, Lord, today. Lord, we're a, a mixed bunch of people. We've got various needs and backgrounds and temperaments and circumstances. And so we really do need a word from heaven that is applicable to all of us. And Lord, only you can do that. No man can engineer that. So will you do that, Lord? Please, this morning, take mere words and make them your word to our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've noticed how very often in the life of a church we can uh, 
soon get into cliches and soon get into jargon and even in a kind of new church setting that we have and we like to think of ourselves as radical and we like to think of ourselves as flexible, we can still get into the cliches and the jargon. It might be different kind of language, religious language, from perhaps the older traditional denominational churches, but very soon we get into it. And one of the characteristics of of cliches and jargon in the life of the church very often is that it's terribly nice. And sometimes it's the kind of language that uh, is so bland that it kind of cloaks what you're really talking about. I was looking uh, last night at a book that I take out from time to time when I need a good laugh. And uh, also it's got, it's got an awful lot of uh, very, very helpful insights. But uh, Gerald Coates, Gerald quotes, and uh, he has one chapter where he he begins to look at some of the jargon. He, he lists, on the one hand, jargon, cliché, or euphemism that we might use in the life of a church. And then on the, other, on the other side of the column, he says, this is the decoded meaning. And he goes through lots of things that you might recognize. I mean, he, he says, prophetic. Prophetic is anything inexplicable, controversial, or not fitting in with the current system of things. You know, we can use that kind of language, can't we? when we, uh, we don't really know what else to say. I've prayed about it a lot. That means it occurred to me recently. <laughs> sharing. Sharing is talking to one another occasionally. Deep sharing is talking to one another with feeling occasionally. And intimate and deep sharing is talking to one another with feeling, having turned the TV off first. <laughs> <laughs> I say this in love... Really what we mean there is, I'm just about to bomb you verbally. You threaten me, I don't like you, and I've wanted to say this for a long time. (laughs) Or a faithful word from the preacher. Not a spark of life in the message, but you couldn't fault theology. (laughs) Or a wonderful relationship with our minister. He's going. (laughs) Or if he's only just come, he'll be gone in two or three years at the most. A split... Three people have left and started a house church. A serious split. 95% have left the church and are now under the apostolic covering of a raving, charismatic house church leader. They've left the building, 300 dog-eared hymn books, a confused bishop, and 30 elder folk who still don't know that anything's happened. (laughs) And then this one, I think this one is very, very uncomfortable. Really committed. Really committed means we like it here and the folk are really nice, so we're staying on at the moment. Oh, twist the knife. Well, sometimes our language can be terribly nice and inoffensive, and actually there's lots behind it, and it can be kind of code word. The things that I think you realize as you read through the Gospels, and interestingly enough, I've seen it as never before in John's Gospel recently. Jesus... Although there were times in which he said the most mysterious things, which seemed to veil things, and you had to think about, and you had to explore, nevertheless, often used to say things in such a down-to-earth way that it shocked people, that it offended people, that it sent people reeling. Jesus didn't go around trying to be terribly nice in the way that he spoke. And very often he would say something that could be very easily misunderstood that could very easily send shivers up people's backbones, that could very easily send them completely um, up up the wrong tree. 
And yet he still kept on doing it. He still kept on speaking very clearly, very plainly, and in a very earthy way. And that's what we've got here in this passage, where Jesus again and again talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I want to focus on one verse this morning, in verse 55, where Jesus says, For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, I think you'll understand that this really was scandalous talk, certainly as far as Jewish people were concerned. I mean, it's scandalous talk in any kind of culture. But for Jewish people, it was particularly revolting because the thought of blood being drunk was especially horrific for Jewish people. And uh, they wouldn't even eat any food uh, from which the, the blood had not been drained thoroughly. And they would never go into a cafe and ask for a rare steak. The very thought of blood being present in the food was horrific to them. And so you can imagine that the tone of Jesus' words, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, really was enough to make them absolutely furious. But it's almost as if Jesus was being deliberately provocative. Because as I read that passage, perhaps you you noticed how many times Jesus repeated that language. He, He seemed to say it again and again and again. In verse 51, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then when they react and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He then starts to repeat it again and again. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 55, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And so on. So Jesus seems to have gone out of his way to say it again and again. And there's an interesting insight from the the Greek of verse 54. Because the Greek word there in verse 54 for eat is... um, A word literally means to munch. It's a different word from just having eating a meal. It is actually a a word that talks about munching, having a good munch. And so Jesus, if this is a faithful reproduction of, of him speaking in his own original language, whoever munches my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This really is a very earthy language indeed. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Of course, we have the advantage as we read it now. When we read it now, read a passage like this, we automatically think of the bread and wine on the table. Perhaps even those of us who are familiar with the Book of Common Prayer might find phrases going through our minds like, feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And uh, we think about how, yes, the cross was Jesus' body being broken, his blood being shared, and how that's that's, that's, uh, reflected in the bread and the wine, and how every single one of us has to receive Christ personally, just as we drink the blood, as we drink the wine, as we eat the, the bread, so we receive Jesus personally. So we've got an advantage as we read a passage like this, and yet even we, when we read the passage, find the language quite difficult. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. In fact, the words 
in that verse have caused some um, quite serious misunderstandings. In the first two centuries, the Roman authorities persecuted the early church ferociously. Many were martyred, thrown into the arena, tortured. Um, It really was a horrendous period. And of course, at that time, they were looking for any and every excuse for doing so. The main one was that they were not worshipping the emperor. Uh, But there were others, and two of the accusations that were made against the early church were misunderstandings of early church teaching. One was the accusation of incest, and the other was of cannibalism. And the accusation of incest against the church, thus persecution, was because of New, uh, New Testament teaching on brotherly love. And they misunderstood what that meant. Brotherly love, to them, meant uh, sexual relations that was uh, infamous. They didn't understand what the New Testament teaching and the Christian church's teaching about brotherly love was. But the other charge was cannibalism. The Romans declared that these Christians, when they got into their little meetings on the first day of the week, ate somebody's flesh and drank somebody's blood. They were cannibals. And so they had to be wiped off the face of the earth. And of course, there was another misunderstanding in a later century that was institutionalized. And in 1215, at one of the, um, the councils of the church, 1215, um, came the doctrine of transubstantiation, which was a misunderstanding of this passage. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And here the church now institutionalizes that misunderstanding with transubstantiation, which actually simply means uh, that... Um, There is a kind of conversion of the whole substance of the bread and the wine on the Lord's table uh, uh, into the whole substance and the body of of the body and Jesus. So it actually becomes Jesus' body and it actually becomes Jesus' blood when it's lifted up and blessed in the uh, context of the Eucharist. So you see how it's been misunderstood, Jesus' earthly language. And yet Jesus, again and again, seems to have used this kind of language, spoken in this kind of way, despite the possibility of misunderstandings. So what is he saying? My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. What is the significance of him talking like this? Um, What I want to suggest to you is this, and I'm going to explore it from a number of different angles in the time that I've got this morning. When we think of the word real, what do we think about? We automatically think about things that are physical and material, don't we? When we talk about something that's real, we often think immediately of something that we can see or touch or taste or smell or hear. And that has been the great misunderstanding right throughout the centuries, and it was certainly the misunderstanding of the Jews when they heard Jesus' words. As far as God's word is concerned, it is the spiritual dimension that is the real dimension. Okay. And the physical, the material, everything that you can see, touch, taste, hear, and smell is actually a shadow of the spiritual reality that is much more real. And so when Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, he's saying, I'm introducing you to a spiritual dimension and that is reality. Now I want to say to you, my dear friends this morning, that that is something we have got to grasp as a vital principle of our lives. 
It is something that we can easily forget in the world that we live in where we're surrounded by the clamour of physical realities, where things that we can see, touch, taste, smell and hear are presented to us in such a glamorous way, in such a demanding way, they're pressed in on us from every direction and it is very easy for us as the people of God suddenly to find it, we're thinking as the world thinks and not as God's word says. And here we've got to hear this word this morning, not just in the context of the bread and the wine that we'll take in due course this morning, but in a whole series of other contexts. God's word says, what do you consider to be real? What are the realities that your life is founded upon? When Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, does your mind automatically think of realities being spiritual realities? Or are the things of the world that are facing us every day, that are, that are staring us in the eye every day, are they much more real to us than the realm of the Spirit, than the dimension of the Spirit, than life in Christ, with all the things that God's Word emphasizes again and again, are actually substance and reality. So let's explore that a little bit this morning, because... Uh, I think it'll be helpful particularly as we come to take the bread and the wine. Let's, let's leave for a, a moment or two real food and real drink and just emphasize that as far as the scriptures as a whole are concerned, realities, as far as God are concerned, are spiritual realities. Just think, think about wealth and riches for a moment. I don't know whether some of you saw the interview yesterday with Robert Maxwell on the television, probably... Uh, on the sports program, I think it was in the afternoon, but it may have been on the news as well. Robert Maxwell has just bought another first division football club from one of his gigantic uh, part of his empire. Uh, Watford Football Club now belongs to Robert Maxwell, the uh, publisher. And he was interviewed, and uh, just a throwaway line, he was just saying, well, you know, the two million pounds we spent on Watford isn't very much money, is it? And then just went on to say something else. You know, we sort of rock on our heels, we've got our mortgage we're struggling with, or perhaps we're struggling to pay the rent, we've got these bills coming in every day for telephone, or, or for the gas, or for the electricity, we look at our payslip, or we're unemployed perhaps, and we see actually that things are pretty hard to, to, uh, to get through week by week, and then we hear this fellow on the television say, well, two million's not very much, is it really, after all, and suddenly we think, car, really, I'm poor. I'm not very well off after all, am I? These people seem to have it made. And he was an arrogant, it was arrogant, the interview, uh, his reaction to the interview in lots of ways. He was uh, really not very helpful, very rude in lots of ways. And you think to yourself, God, these are the people who are rich. These are the people who are wealthy. And you can see it all around. These people who've made so much on the stock exchange in that year after the Big Bang. Incredible story in the Sunday Times magazine the other week. Did any of you see it? About this fellow who's on the floor of the stock exchange. And the tens of thousands he's made. Just a very young kid in that year since the Big Bang. And you think, God, these people are rich. God, what we couldn't do with that kind of money. And then suddenly... God's word comes into our hearts and says, what are real riches? What's real wealth? Careful. Now, that's not to say that we can't, in a very godly way, channel money and investments or whatever the resources may be, and we can do it in a godly way that will honor God. 
And that's one of the things we want to do in terms of this gift day that's coming. We want to channel our resources, such as they are, so that it can be used in a godly way. There is no doubt at all that there are men and women of wealth who've dedicated their their resources to God, and God has honoured that. But one of the things we've got to watch ourselves on whatever level it is, it may just be looking at somebody else's salary alongside us, or the district in town that they live in. We've got to watch ourselves constantly. Am I thinking God's way, or am I thinking in this world's way? When I think in this world's way, very, very soon, I find that spiritual life begins to drain out of me. Am I thinking in God's way? What is real wealth? And what is real prosperity? What are real riches? In Matthew chapter 6, remember how the Lord Jesus is talking in a whole different range of ways about our values and our priorities in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Matthew six nineteen, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, Before I went to to train uh, um, for Christian ministry at at Spurgeon's College, when I was about 21 or 2, I'd worked for a few years for the Department of Health and Social Security and Supplementary Benefits in uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And uh, I remember on one occasion, an old widow died, and because she had no remaining family, uh, it was necessary to, um, to find out what, what, what she had and what her resources were, etc. And apparently, when the, uh, the people went in to find out, under her bed that she'd slept in as a widow for the last 15 years or so, in relative poverty, she'd been very poor uh, indeed, the house was in an awful state, under the bed they found a box... And in the box, there were a lot of papers. Um, There was evidence that she probably had a look around the box, but not understanding what the papers were all about, she just shut the box and put it in under the bed again. But in fact, what she'd done is, for the last 15 years, she'd slept in poverty over a box which said that she was actually worth an awful lot of money. Her husband obviously had investments that she didn't know anything about, and uh, those investments represented tens of thousands of pounds. And there she had, every night, for the last 15 years as a widow, slept over that box in poverty, not knowing her true riches. And I say that to you this morning, because, my dear friends, the Word of God says we are the richest people in the world. We have a glorious inheritance. God has showered upon us the riches that are really valuable. And when we look at the tycoons of this world, whoever they are, when we look at the rich men and women of this world, God's word says to us, they may be actually the poorest people in the world. And we may be the richest people because of our inheritance in Christ. It's all a matter of reality and what reality we focus on. You see it? I think that we need to be encouraged by this sometimes because we can get our heads sagging It's understandable sometimes. It is difficult to make ends meet sometimes. Sometimes we find it ever such a struggle. And God says to us, look, get your eyes on me. Fix on eternal realities. And once you do that, then you're in that place where I can actually begin to help you. I can begin to chat things through to you. 
This was our experience in our family, Liz and Philip and myself, two or three years back, when we knew that God was saying to us that we needed to come out of a, a denominational setting in the Baptist church. And at that time, we didn't know what that meant for us. We didn't know where we would go. I genuinely thought I'd be going back up north, and I was prepared to get a job like a postman's job or a milkman's job, where I could have some income but have some free time as well um, to study God's word and to preach still. But I genuinely didn't know what was going to uh, come. We didn't have a house because we'd always lived in a Baptist manse. Didn't have a car. The car belonged to the church. Had no savings. But we knew that God was saying this. Look, trust me. Put your weight on me. I'm your priority. If you follow me in obedience, then he's able to flood into our lives whatever we need. He doesn't promise us life of luxury. But whatever we need, our daily bread... Uh, then God can flood into our lives because our reality is a spiritual reality that we're trusting in, not an earthly one. So, real wealth and riches. Or we could talk about real health and beauty, couldn't we? Real health and beauty. Now again, it is very easy to be lured by the glossy magazine view of real health and beauty or the cinema image of it, the glowing skin, the, the shiny hair, the bronze limbs, the slim body that's supposed to be the perfect body. <laughs> I, I was interested the other, other day looking at the passage in Ephesians 3. I don't know whether Alan's preached on it yet, about let there be glory in the church, to him be glory in the church. And the word glory in the Hebrew, the, the root of the word glory, uh, comes from a, a word meaning heaviness or weight. And so I was telling the folks at um, Southwick that every time they get on the bathroom scales now and they're a little bit overweight, they can shout glory with new meaning or sometimes glory, glory. <laughs> and so we're given this image of what is perfect. And we have, I mean, the girls have got to cope with these these uh, mannequins and these models that parade up and down on, on the television screen and in our magazines that are, give, are, are, we're told are the perfect image of beauty. And these girls have spent hours in front of the mirror, they've been painted, they've had the best clothes put on them, they've had top hairdressers lavishing hours on them, and then we're told this is the image that we've got to live up to. And uh, it's total rubbish. And that's the kind of thing that men and women are sold so that they can buy products and so that they can actually go down avenues that the advertisers want them to go down. And we've got to constantly come back to what the Word of God says about what is real. Just as what is real wealth, what is real beauty, what is real health, what is really uh, good to look at, what is really uh, wonderful in terms of appearance. Now, I'm not minimizing the need to be physically well or to be, um, <coughs> have an appearance that is smart or even attractive. We don't want to minimize that at all. But in fact, um, the Word of God says that real beauty is not something to do with cosmetics. It is not something to do with uh, whether your skin is perfect or not. It's not something to do with uh, how many pounds you weigh when you get on the bathroom scales. In the final analysis, it's got to do with inward. One of the verses I love, um, which underlines this, is in uh, 2 Samuel 14.25. 2 Samuel 14.25. It talks about Absalom. 
It's not one of those verses that you would meditate on, I, I don't think, very often. But it talks about Absalom, and it says that Absalom, he was a, a, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish on him. In other words, he didn't have dandruff, and he didn't have athlete's feet, <laughs> both of which I've got. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did I say that for? <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> Tapes don't know whether you're blushing or not, do they? <laughs> but what kind of guy did Absalom turn out to be? Eh? What kind of man did he turn out to be? He was a rebel. He was a man that tried to split the kingdom of David. He was a man who broke his father's heart. And he was a man who ended ended up in tragedy. Do you remember how God spoke into Samuel's heart when he was lining up Jesse's sons? And he looked at Eliab. And Eliab was tall and dynamic. And um, he was tempted to go for Eliab. And God said, you know, I don't look at men and women as man looks. Man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart. Saul, you see, had been a man of outward appearance, the first king. And uh, that reminder Samuel needed, he was going to do it again. He was going to go for appearance, an outward, outward show. And then David came along. And it wasn't that David had an ugly mug. It wasn't that David somehow was the absolute uh, opposite of everything that people would have thought was, was healthy and beautiful. In fact, it says, the word of God says that he was comely and ruddy in appearance. Had a good suntan. <laughs> nice curly hair. He was a young fellow. But it was God looking at his heart. My dear friends, you may never get in a glossy magazine. Girls, you might never win the Miss World contest, thank God. When you see the Miss World contest, it really is quite pathetic. But actually, God may look upon you and he may, his heart will glow with pride as he looks at the beauty in your life. You can be beautiful in your spirit. And actually, of course, the two are linked, aren't they? When you've got a spirit that's beautiful, when you've got an attitude to God that is humble, that is full of faith, that is full of joy, that radiates into your face. It radiates through your whole appearance. Fellas, the same for you. When you're a man of faith, when you're a man who goes after God, when you're a man who can be trusted, when you're reliable, when your wit can be counted, that shows in your appearance. That shows in your mannerisms. That shows in the kind of uh, physical presence that you may have. And you may be a seven-stone weakling. (laughs) Or you may find now that your trousers don't fit you. But you still will be a, a man who God looks at and says, there is a man of health and there is a man of beauty. And he is a handsome man in my sight. You see, we must not let the way of the world creep into our thinking. We must not start to have the values of the world. And then we find that all our time and all our attention is spent on things that are actually external. That's quite a sobering thought sometimes, to think how much time we spend preparing ourselves (laughs) physically and how much time we spend uh, preparing ourselves in the realm of the Spirit for a day. It it says something about our, our values And sometimes it's no wonder that uh, some of us find physical realities much more real than spiritual realities. 
because we give so little time to spiritual realities. It may well be that because we give all our attention to things that are physical and, uh, and material, that of course they're more real to us. The more time that we spend in God's Word, the more time that we are men and women of prayer, the more time that we do walk in faith, then of course spiritual realities are more real to us. Inevitably, because we're living more and more in the realm of the Spirit. So, real wealth and, and riches, real health and beauty, or you could talk about real power and might. The people of influence and authority in the world. Uh, one could think about our Prime Minister at the moment. Who would have thought a few years ago that the word Thatcherism would have uh, been coined? But actually, the, the lady in question has been very, very influential in our country's history. When the historians come to write the history of this period, Margaret Thatcher will be down. A very, very influential person in uh, this country's history in the 20th century. And other people that we could name. And we say, cool, these people have got real power and real influence. And sometimes we say, yes, we want Christians in those places of real power and real influence. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Don't disagree with that at all. In fact, as I read my Bible, I see that God often deliberately placed his men and his women in places of influence. So it's not that we're cutting across that any more than we were cutting across the fact that we can use wealth, worldly wealth, any more than we were cutting across the fact that we need to watch our appearance and not get sloppy and lazy and dirty. Yes, we can see mighty men and women of God in places of influence and authority. But God's word says, in the final analysis, the real authority in this world does not belong to world rulers. It belongs to the people of God who will come with the authority of Jesus in prayer to him. Now sometimes we can minimize that, but that's what God's word says. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you lot go. Go in my name. There is no greater authority than the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God says that actually the redeemed of God, the church of Jesus Christ, outrank all other order of created beings. Never mind other men and women. The word of God says that our authority supersedes all that of other order of created beings. So that angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who inherit salvation. So that one day we will judge the angels as well as the world. That's what, that's what God's word says. And so as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to stand on that. We've got to believe it. This is reality. As the advert says, this is the real thing. Yes. Real authority is ours in Christ. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, said Jesus. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When two or three of you gather in my name, there I am in the midst. If any of you agree under heaven about anything, I will give it to you. You see, mighty authority that is ours in Christ. And we've got to say, now what am I going to believe, Lord? Am I going to believe that actually these people and these councils and these synods and these uh, United Nations assemblies are much more influential and powerful. And God says, no, actually, two or three meeting in a living room, really calling on God with the authority of the name of Jesus, can be more powerful and authoritative than all the others put together. 
Do we believe that? Well, that's what God's word says, and that's God's perspective, and that's what I'm going to believe. And that's what I'm going to go for. And that's what we're seeking to build into ourselves as a church here. Realities. What is real? Jesus says, my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, I enjoy a good meal. I'm hoping that there'll be a nice smell as I open the the front door and go back into the house at lunchtime. And I shall enjoy my Sunday lunch. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. God has given us food to enjoy and drink to enjoy. And that's part of the, uh, the, the good things that God has given us in life. But God's word says, look, this food, as in all the other things that we've mentioned this morning, they're shadows of something that's just much more substantial than that, spiritual realities. And when we enjoy that food, it is a, an illustration to us it is an example that God gives us of actually something much more satisfying that God can give us. He can give us actually spiritual food that satisfies us much more deeply in a much more lasting way. Just as, at the, woman, as the woman in the well um, was saying, you know, when Jesus said, give me to drink, uh, and she hummed and hard about it and so on, and then he said, I can give you water that is much more satisfying than this water you can give me to drink. Or give me so that I can drink. You know, water that I'll I'll never thirst again. See what Jesus was saying. That's real quenching of thirst. And here he's doing exactly the same thing in this passage in John 6. Food that really satisfies. The food that God supplied for the Israelites wandering in Sinai over the 40 years was daily. They got hungry again, needed to be replenished. And Jesus is saying, look, food that can really satisfy you It may be that there are some here this morning who don't know in a personal way the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be that you've come this morning and there is in there a hunger. It's got nothing to do with the fact you hadn't time for breakfast this morning. It's a different kind of hunger. It's got nothing at all to do with toast and marmalade or cereals. It's to do with an emptiness there that hungers after more in life. You've seen everything. You need more. You know there is more. You see other people who seem to be fed within, and you're not. We had a wonderful example of this two weeks ago at Southwick. Um, One of our young women came to me before the worship in the morning, and she said, I felt God woke me up early this morning and gave me a couple of of impressions um, about somebody who would be here for the first time this morning in our meeting. And I said, well, what was it then? And she said, well, it was two things, really. First of all, that the person was going to come with lots of questions that needed answering uh, urgently. And the second was, I had a, a mental picture of this person on a beach. And uh, he or she and another person were in the distance. And it was a kind of romantic setting, the beach. But then, looking at it, it changed and became rather bleak. And there was even some doubt as to whether the two figures were together anymore on the beach. And uh, felt that God wanted to say to this person that, um, that he wanted to answer their questions and he wanted to bring light and life again into their life, but they needed to give their life to him first. And she added, I felt also that God said to me, um, it's important for this person to come to the front and be prayed for this morning. So I said to her, well, 
wait for the right moment this morning and you share it. And she did that wonderfully um, in, the, in, in the context of uh, several prophetic words and uh, a time when God was speaking to us and she shared it. And then we went into a song. And as I was in the song, um, one of our people came up to me and said, uh, there's a fellow here for the first time this morning and uh, he uh, feels that God has just spoken to him through what's just been shared and uh, he wants to come to the front and be prayed for. Now, that hadn't been said. Those words had not been said when the word of knowledge had been shared. But this man had obviously heard God speaking and it transpired as he came out and uh, we shared with the gospel with him that he'd just gone through or was going through a divorce. And uh, the picture was just exactly him. And for months he'd been struggling with questions and uh, really being challenged by the gospel. And he'd come that morning and again, lots of questions. And God had spoken to him and shown him that he knew all about it and was ready for him. And uh, the two of us uh, led, led him to Christ that morning. And the lovely thing was... We weren't aware of what was going on around us um, the rest of the time because we were locked into sharing the gospel with him and him, he cried out to God to come into his life. It was wonderful. And having done that, um, we didn't realize, but they'd begun to break bread and pass the wine round. And at that very moment, having received Christ, the first thing I had to do was to give him the bread and he ate it and give him the cup and he drank from it. You see? Jesus said, he who believes in me will never hunger. You know, that deep hunger, that, that unquenchable thirst, until Jesus comes along and uh, he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. What's real? Well, that man on that morning found out what for him was real and it was got, had nothing to do with, with food on a table. It really had to do with receiving Christ feeding on him, putting his trust in him. And I say that to you now. We're going to take the bread and the wine now and we're going to feed by faith in our hearts on Christ with thanksgiving. And I say that to some of you who perhaps this morning might realize that for you, you don't know Christ. There is an emptiness there. The realities that you focused on up to this point have been physical, material, earthly realities the reality of the spirit has, has been quite, quite dead dim for you. But suddenly it's beginning to come into sharp focus. And this morning you need to put your trust in him. It may be for many of us that in ways perhaps that I haven't mentioned, suddenly, subtly even, we may have found ourselves beginning to trust in earthly realities. And the reality of the spirit, the dimension of the spirit, has just faded, just begun to recede. Not so real for us perhaps. And God is just calling back again this morning. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink.